veteran and a kaiju newbie watch giant monster movies and chat about them. I'm Andrew. And I'm Amanda. So the movie we watched for this episode had a, a little bit of something for everybody. It had musical numbers. It had strong mama bear tendencies. It had anti-capitalism. And just a tiny dash of racism. Just a hint of racism. <laughs> it's like when you drink the wine and it says like hints of apple and when you're done with the wine you're like, hmm. I guess there was a little apple in that. Just a note of racism. <laughs> we watched Mothra, 1961. The sub to be precise. This, uh, the sub to be precise. This is the most recent movie I have received. I got it for Christmas. A nice Blu-ray. Excuse me. The most recent movie you received was a collection of kaiju movies from your beautiful wife. That, well, I was going to mention that next. <laughs> I was going to say that was the thing I got most recently until okay. I got my early graduation gift, which was that big old Godzilla movie collection from Criterion. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> we watched Mothra. Amanda, what'd you think? I liked it for the most part. There was definitely some problematic sections. Sure. Wide swaths of problematic sections, but for the most part, I liked it. More or less. So this movie, I have shown you outside of this podcast, I've shown you Mothra vs. Godzilla. And I don't remember any of it. That's fine. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about it in the podcast eventually. But that movie is essentially a remake of this one. With Godzilla. Plus Godzilla. And it's definitely better in pretty much every way. I'll have to take your word for that. But you've seen it twice. Have I? You have. <laughs> I have a bad memory for movies. Well, It's amazing that I've been able to keep up this whole time. You're not taking detailed notes when we watch movies for fun. That's true. For anyone besides us who's not in the room... I have Andrew pause the movie every few seconds so I can scribble notes. My notes are getting longer as opposed to shorter. I thought they'd get more condensed over time, but that's not the case. No. So this movie often gets compared to Mothra vs. Godzilla, and I think Mothra vs. Godzilla is the better movie overall. But Mothra, as we will discuss throughout the whole podcast, is a highly important movie. It is... It, it is no stretch to say it is genre-defining. How so? Well, we'll talk about it in more detail later, but think about the plots of the two movies we've seen that came before Mothra, Godzilla and Rodan. In Godzilla, Monster appears, humans try to figure out how to get rid of Monster, Monster dies. In Rodan, Monster appears, humans try to figure out how to get rid of Monster, Monster dies. In Mothra... Humans go to monster, cause problems in the monster's house. <laughs> monster shows up at the human's house, and the humans have to appease the monster to make it fixed. It essentially set up what the structure of every monster movie going forward is going to be like, because it no longer is about humans versus monsters. It's about humans versus humans with monsters making the drama worse. It's basically Goldilocks and the Three Bears. How so? She goes into their house and messes stuff up, <laughs> and it's the bears coming back and slapping her. Yes, I suppose that's true. <laughs> but that's what I mean, is that this movie changed what kaiju films are and made them better by a long shot. So we'll, we'll talk about that throughout the whole thing. So I know that 
Godzilla was 1954. Mm-hmm. And in Godzilla Reigns Again. Raids Again? Raids Again. In return, in Godzilla Raids Again, it's Godzilla versus Ingress. Yes. Is Mothra the next kaiju that Toho introduced? There's a lot of ways you could answer that question. The next monster that they created on uh, altogether is Rodan. The next monster that Godzilla fought was King Kong. But the next monster that Godzilla fought that was also a Toho creation was Mothra. <laughs> That's a lot of caveats in there. Sure. I always think of Mothra first. Like, before I really knew much about Godzilla, it was Godzilla and then Godzilla and Mothra. And then Godzilla and King Kong. I didn't know that Godzilla fought King Kong until I met you. Sure. Mothra is, uh, according to multiple like surveys and stuff recently, the most popular kaiju aside from Godzilla. I get it. On my water bottle, I have a sticker of Mothra that says Yas Queen. <laughs> you do. We'll have to post a picture of that sometime. Uh, and if we do post it, it will be on our Twitter account. At Kaiju Island. Oh, no, thanks. <laughs> that's wrong. Don't go there. At Island Kaiju. <laughs> so we watched the Mill Creek Blu-ray. And we watched it subbed, like we already said. And we watched it on a PS4. We watched it on a <laughs> PS4, I guess. You said what we watched it on. That's part of it. I, but I'm not keeping that part of the podcast. Eh. <laughs> it's technically relevant i guess all right continue actually before we jump in after all that (laughs) i know yeah i'll mention it later continue sure should i mention it now maybe i'll mention it now i don't know what you're mentioning so i can't help you here so mothra the movie we watched is an adaptation of a novel actually Uh, a novel called the luminous fairies and mothra is that why they're called fairies throughout the whole movie? They're also women who are like six inches tall. Okay, but fairies have wings. Not always. Fairies have wings. Okay. So it's an adaptation of the no- novel The Luminous Fairies and Mothra by Takahiko Fukunaga, Shinichiro Nakamura, and Yoshie Hota. That's all. Does it, it stay pretty true to the novel? I don't know. I don't think there are any English copies of it and i don't i couldn't find any like strong slot slot synopsis plot synopsis so isn't it your job to do the research yes i'm just supposed to come to the table and talk it is my (laughs) job to do that (laughs) so the movie starts off introducing one of the main locations in the movie infant island there's a weather center that's reporting a typhoon and a ship is caught off the coast of, of Infant Island and they end up getting marooned there and everyone's worried because there's a really high level of radiation for yeah. this island, yeah. which doesn't really come into play much. I guess they're trying to explain Mothra's backstory without really getting into the backstory. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And also why... Um... They needed a reason to go to the island. That's true. Yeah, they needed people who were there. But the radiation part, I mean. Sure. But I think that every movie, especially in Japan, every sci-fi movie at the time, has to do something with nuclear fallout. So they go and they rescue the people from the ship. And they bring them back. As they're getting treated for radiation sickness at the hospital, 
Dr. Harada says that there's no sign of radiation sickness at all, actually. They aren't showing any of the symptoms by their own reports, and every scan they've taken looks normal. And the survivors tell Dr. Harada and the surrounding group that they were given some sort of red juice by the natives. Right. Which is very strange because there's not supposed to be any natives there. Or things to make juice from. Especially because they just nuclear tested there. Yeah. The the country of Relisica just did nuclear testing there. Yeah. So Relisica. Let's just talk about Relisica for a second. We talked about this when we were watching the movie. We did. So I'm not going to make you guess what Relisica is. But Relisica is basically a very thinly veiled stand-in for both... America and the Soviet Union. So I very strongly saw the America ties. I didn't see strong Soviet Union ties, or at least where they would differ enough that you're trying to bring in Russia. So Relisica, the name is supposed to be a combination of Russia and America. Yeah, I mean, outside of that. And Relisica is supposed to just be the white Cold War powers. Like, it's just supposed to be... The Cold War power. The European white Cold War power. So it's a combination of the Soviet Union and America. Because it's not specifically targeted at America. It's targeted at uh, people in power. And they do a lot of things that we'll talk about later that make them very... They definitely lean a lot more towards the United States. Yes. Like I said, this movie has some anti-capitalist messaging. And Soviet Union obviously is not capitalist. (laughs) So we'll circle back around to that. So during this whole meeting with the survivors and the medical staff, the reporters are outside trying to push their way in. And it turns out two of the reporters had snuck in pretending to be part of the medical staff. (laughs) One of them is named Michi and she is the photographer. And she basically serves as the role to just run up and tell the people in the movie a thing they should know. Right. Michi Hanamura, who is played by Kyoko Kagawa. Um, she was born in 1931, and she's still still kicking. She's still kicking. She's still around. <laughs> um, but she was actually a regular actor under Akira Kurosawa, and was usually cast as a love interest for Toshiro Mifune. So she, she was in The Bad Sleep Well, High and Low, and Red Beard, which are three fantastic Akira Kurosawa movies, apparently. That I have never seen. <laughs> I've seen a lot of Kurosawa movies, and I've never seen those Wait, three. Toshiro Mifune? Yeah, she's usually a, a love interest for Toshiro Mifune. Is he the one who was in Godzilla, or is he the one who was in Yojimbo? He, yeah, he was the main character in Yojimbo. Okay, I just, I get those two actors backwards. He, he was the guy in Seven Samurai with the giant sword. Okay, I, I got it now, I just yeah. had those two backwards. Yeah. So she she is a, a well-established actress. I mean, I loved her. I just didn't think she was used to she the best of her abilities. She doesn't do one. much. She was accompanied by Zenichiro. They call him Zen throughout the whole movie, who they call the snapping turtle because once he gets a lead, he doesn't let go. He says that a bunch, yeah. I hate it. Zenichiro's snapping turtle Fukuda is plain, played by Frankie Sakai. Frankie? Uh, Frankie. I didn't know they had people named Frankie in... In Japan? I Japan in the 60s. I think maybe... I don't know. 
I don't know where the name comes from. He might have also done some work in the United States. Maybe. I wonder if it's a stage name. Yeah, it's a stage name. He was born Masatoshi Sakai. There you go. And so his stage name is Frankie Sakai. He was a, he started as a jazz musician. He started as a jazz musician and then became a comedian and an actor. And he, he went on to become famous for his comedic film roles in Toho movies specifically. His, his only kaiju movie is Mothra, but he, he's obviously a very skilled physical actor. Like he does a great job in this movie. I think it's very vaudeville. Yeah, definitely. So the next scene we see Zen talking with a familiar actor to us, the man who played Dr. Yamane from Godzilla, the 1954 movie, who also played the main character in Ikiru and one of the main samurai in Seven Samurai. Are you looking at my notes? I'm looking at my notes. You're taking all my thunder. <laughs> I don't remember his name. I was about to say, what's his name? That's your job. It's Takashi Shimura. <laughs> but you got everything else completely right. His character's name is News Editor. <laughs> He's in the movie a lot, but he never gets a name. He doesn't have a name. But we did see Seven Samurai and Ikiru recently, which is why those are fresh in my head. More than Godzilla, because we've seen them more recently. Yeah. But Zen is talking to the News Editor, Dr. <laughs> Yamane. Is he canonically Dr. Yamane? They didn't give him a name. Maybe he had a career change. I guarantee guarantee he did not go from sad professor who was around for Godzilla dying to then pick up being a a gruff news editor. I don't know. In my head he did. Who wants the scoop. So Zen is talking to his news editor about the Berluscan embassy making a statement about the island being inhabited before the nuclear testing. Zen mentions a man named Shinichi Chujo, Mm -hmm. who's the authority on the local geography of the Polynesian Islands, because he recently came back from Polynesia as a linguist. Yep. They had sent Michi out to get a picture of Chujo, and she came back with a picture of him with a book in front of his face. (laughs) (laughs) Can I just say, though, as somebody who is a Pacific Islander, calling all Pacific Islanders Polynesians feels so gross yeah especially from i don't know from out someone outside of it especially from japan especially from japan this is something we're going to be touching on a lot is that japan doesn't have the right to be talking about how many years is this after the Patan death march i don't know i think that was in 42 so uh, 19 if you're right 19 years is not a lot no the same people are probably still alive. Yeah. Anyway. It's it's something that's going to come up a lot in this movie. Getting off my soapbox for a moment. Just for a moment. So Zen and Michi head out to interview Chujo about the joint expedition with Relisica to go explore Infant Island. So they're interviewing Chujo. I think it's at his house is what it seems like. Yeah. Because his brother's there. Yeah. And they're interviewing and the whole time. He has the newspaper over his face. And I can't tell if they're going for like a reveal of who this actor is. Or if they're just going for a bit, but... It could be a little bit of both. They're talking to him, and then Michi jumps up, and this is when we first see Chujo's face. And he's very handsome. I assumed he was going to be the main character, but he was kind of tied up there with Zen. Sure, yeah. Dr. Shinichi Chujo is played by Hiroshi Koizumi, who was born in 1926 and is still active. Well, I don't know if he's 
currently active as an actor, but he's still alive. Uh, he is an actor who appeared in a large variety of kaiju movies. We'll see him in Godzilla Raids again. We saw him in Mothra, obviously. He's in Matongo. Tons of other movies. I don't know what Matongo is. Uh, Matongo is uh, the movie about giant mushroom people. Oh, okay. He plays Dr. Shinichi Chujo again, actually. In Mothra vs. Godzilla? In a much later movie. Godzilla Tokyo SOS. Damn. Which is from 2003. He... It basically is a direct sequel to Mothra, just made, what, 30, 40 years ago, 40 years later. And he, he just plays the same character again, and it's awesome. He's a very good actor, though. So Michi jumps up, and it turns out there's a mouse where she was sitting, and Chujo's calls his little brother in because it's his little brother's mouse, and he comes, and he's trying to get the mouse, and Zen volunteers to catch the mouse for him Mm -hmm. and this is a kind of our first physical comedy from him yeah he gets the mouse in his clothing and he's kind of doing a little dance trying to get it out and it comes out his pant leg yep it's not it's not the first physical comedy we get because our very first shot of him is him pretending to be a nurse or a doctor sneaking into where all the doctors are and he has the mask over his eyes (laughs) yeah i I totally forgot about that because I wasn't paying attention to him at that point. Sure, sure. But Chucha's basically denying all knowledge of anything. He's saying, well, you'll have to ask the Ruliskins. But they point out that per the Ministry of Education, they have him listed as going on this expedition as a linguist. And then Chujo says, all Polynesians are alike. Yeah, he does. Whether they're, I think he said, Hawaiian or... Tahitian. Something like that. Something like that. I didn't write down the exact um, countries that he mentioned. And there's a legend that they used to all be one big island. Yeah. And that's their justification for him being able to read different languages. Yeah. Even though he has no reason of knowing that language. I still hate it. it I think he's referencing the, uh, like, a Japanese, like, or East Asian in general, like, myth about... It's essentially their Atlantis, like Moo or whatever, but that doesn't make it okay. It makes it worse, actually. It makes it worse, yeah. Having a legend about somebody else's country. Yeah. No, you're right. It's It sucks. Especially since he's supposed to be the authority, he should be the one who knows the differences. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh gosh, what's the science of the bumps on somebody's head? Is it phrenology? Yeah, phrenology. It's basically the study of phrenology where you're using your pseudoscience to justify your stereotypes. A little bit, yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. I'm going to go a lot on a lot of rants during this episode. <laughs> I'm sorry in advance. <laughs> he makes a mention while Michi takes a picture of him that the shutter is like a guillotine, which is a weird statement from him because that doesn't really ever get explained. That why he didn't want his picture taken and why it's like a guillotine. He just doesn't like it. It's just a character thing for him. (laughs) They use this to go into Michi talking about she only believes the things she sees through her camera. Mm -hmm. And that does become important later. That being able to see things through the lens of a camera is very important to her and her belief system. It gives her an excuse to, you know, she's talking about her, her character's beliefs or whatever. But she also now has an excuse to pull out her lighter, which is also secretly a camera, and take secret pictures of him. 
which will come up later also. Yes. So they announced that Dr. Harada is leading the Japanese team for the expedition, which I don't understand. He seems like a medical doctor. He was the one that was analyzing the survivors for radiation poisoning. If he's a radiation specialist, bringing him along to a radioactive island probably is not a bad idea. Yeah, but leading the team, he seems more like a specialist consultant like Chujo would be. Yeah, but if he's the most senior scientist there, then maybe he'll be leading the science team. I don't know. Whatever. So they have a shot of the Riliskins meeting the Japanese at the airfield, and they had some weird English voiceovers yeah. on top of the English-speaking actors. Yeah, they were all dubbed again. I can't figure out why they would do that, because... Because they were dubbed over in English, and they were speaking English. Right, in the sub of the movie. Like, I'd get it if they were dubbed over again for the American... Yeah, because you want all the, the audio to be the same. Right, and it also was not great English. Um, so <laughs> you may want to fix that. But I don't understand why they dubbed them. I don't know. But they did say that they're not allowing press on the expedition. Mm -hmm. We're introduced to a man named Clark Nelson, who becomes very important to this movie. He is the leader of the Reliscan part of the expedition. And he... Very clearly, just based on his face and his facial expressions, is not a good guy. Right. He is played by Jerry Ito. And Jerry Ito is so good at facial expressions in he this really movie. He really is. I love his face, facial expressions in this movie. He's also somebody who would do really well in black and white films because you could just read what he's saying based on his expressions. Yeah. Without being able to read lips or hear what right. he's saying. Right. Uh, Clark, not Clark Nestle. That's his character. Jerry Ito was born 1927, died in 2007. He was an American. He was Japanese-American, but, he, you know, he's an American. And he did speak fluent English and Japanese. In the movie. Both of which had a bit of an accent, but he spoke them both fluently. Yeah. Uh, he served in the U.S. Navy in World War II, uh, which I know is not super common for Japanese-Americans. So that that's awesome. And he was among the first occupying forces in Japan after the war. And then... During that after-war period, he studied to become an actor, and then, you know, after a while back in America, he returned to Japan, and he, he took up some acting in Japan. He is most famous for this role in Mothra. I mean, he was a pretty big role in it, so I get it. And he did very well with it. He also famously had a strong relationship with Hiroshi Koizumi, who is the uh, actor for Chujo. So the two of them were, were close friends, even though they're enemies in the movie or whatever bitter enemies <laughs> so clark nelson or nelson as i call him throughout my notes and i think they call him nelson pretty much the whole movie he's holding a press conference talking about why they aren't allowing press on the expedition saying that because they want the expedition to succeed and one of the reporters chimes in saying so you're saying that reporters would get in the way and he just says no they're just not allowed because i'm in charge <laughs> He's, he does not stick to his guns at all. He's one of those parents that says, because I said so. Yeah, exactly. But Michi and Zen think he's hiding something. Which he is, but I don't know why they think that. He's so obviously hiding something. Yeah, he, but like he didn't do anything to sure. that, ha that give that impression. If you don't want the press coming for no reason, you're hiding something. Okay, but 
radiation. I wouldn't want to be in charge of the safety of reporters while I'm on this very dangerous expedition. That's fair. With a very limited room because they have to go in on a boat. That's fair. So we see the send-off, and I think the send-off is really cool. I don't know if this is a thing we ever did in America, but the people on the boat were holding streamers, and then the people on land were holding the other ends. So when the boat takes off, the streamers, like, rip. See, I've seen that in a lot of movies, but I, now I don't know if those were all Japanese movies or not. <laughs> so, But that's such a cool tradition. Yeah. It's something I, we should do here if we don't. I feel like it was just a thing in the 50s and 60s in general. Makes sense. But I don't know. So Nelson is on the boat and he's scowling for no reason. Because it's great. <laughs> he's good at it. And Michi is looking around because she can't find Zen. On the boat, Harada and Chujo are talking. Dr. Harada's mad after coming out of a meeting because Nelson is holding on to all the expedition data and won't share it with the Japanese team. I never mentioned who played Dr. Harada, did I? No. Dr. Harada is played by Ken Uehara. Uh, born 1909, died 1991. He also stored, stored, he also starred in Gorath and Atragon, which are two movies we will eventually watch. But Dr. Harada refers to this as an academic expedition and says like, that's kind of the point. And he's very justifiably upset about this. And he is wondering if there's some sort of secret agency behind this expedition. In his cabin, Nelson catches Zen with a rag of some kind. It, it looks like a rag with writing on it. It does, yeah. And I don't even think you can see the writing at this point. It just looks like a rag. But Nelson catches Zen with a rag, and they never explain what this rag is. They really don't. <laughs> and Nelson pretends to be cleaning with the rag. They mention later that Clark Nelson uh, goes to places and finds treasures or whatever. So it's clear, it's obviously a treasure map or something, but how he got it. And, and what it's supposed to be leading to. What it's supposed to be leading to are just so mysterious. They're never explained. I thought they would be, so I didn't even think to mention it in my notes, but. Yeah, no, that never gets brought up. So Nelson pulls a gun on him and asks where he got that, the rag, whatever they yeah. call it in the movie. Um, and this is the first time, but it becomes very evident all the Americans always have guns on them at all times. Mm -hmm. the, all the Relisicans. I'm sorry. All the Relisicans have guns on them at all times. Yes. And they use them very frequently, which is very, which would be really noticeable to a Japanese audience because guns just aren't a common thing in Japan. Well, this movie was directed by Ishiro Honda of basically all the movies from this time period, fame. Um, hey, I know that one. Yeah. And Ishiro Honda, one of his things is you don't have the heroes with guns. All of his movies are about people coming together and peace and like finding some sort of middle ground, things like that. And to him, as someone who fought in World War II, guns are not the way to do that. So he will often give villains guns as a way to signify that they are villains. So while he's holding him at gunpoint, Nelson frisks Zen and pulls out his Neo Press badge. He says, I don't remember hiring a cabin boy from Neato Press. Yeah. Neato. Is that what it is? It's Neato? Yeah, N-I-T-T-O. That's what the subtitle said. I don't hmm. know if... I, I don't know. I don't know how accurate the subtitles are. Zen says, 
you know what? I'm just going to be leaving. And Nelson says, no, not that easy. Until Chujo barges in and demands to know if he's supposed to be turning in all his data from this expedition. And if that's an order from Ruliska. And Nelson says, it's a request. So Chujo says, well, then I refuse. And leaves with Zen. As they get close to the radiation zone, they're all told to put on their radiation suits for inspection. And so while they're all doing that, Dr. Harada is talking to the Japanese team. So while they're all doing that, Dr. Harada is talking to the Japanese team and telling them that he did not promise that they would turn over all their data and report to Nelson. They've made Zen into a security guard to justify him being on this expedition. (laughs) And she does lead the way a lot for being this reporter turned security guard. He's pretty pretty solid at the security guarding i think <laughs> oh yeah he even does a little bit of security guarding later he it's does funny. yeah and they mention something about the reason they have to report to Riliska is because professor rock defers to them i don't know who D- professor rock is they don't he has a picture when you look at him online yeah as dr roth but yeah. we don't know who he plays or what role he is i don't remember that character at all i don't either so we struggled with that so if anyone else has any information on that feel free to tweet us or email us you can email us at kaijuanpodcast at gmail.com or again you could tweet at us at island kaiju and we promise to only say those one more time for this whole podcast at the end i make no such promise (laughs) so they're exploring infant island they're on the beaches of it the like kind of rocky shores of it and they crest this hill and they see a wide jungle which should not be there mm-hmm. yeah it's really it's honestly cool it's like a beautiful scene but it also is kind of like a it's kind of like in a horror movie like this thing should not be here and it's kind of a cool combination of the two it reminds me of skull island or journey to the center of the earth yeah yeah it's very King Kong. Yes. A lot of this movie is very King Kong. <laughs> so right, Nel- right down to the racism. <laughs> so Nelson's off exploring on his own. He's using the Rab as a kind of map when he's caught by Zen. And it just kind of plays it off. Yeah. Chujo is off wandering when he finds a cave. It's like a pink cave. And <laughs> yeah. he finds these big old pod plants. And he says, oh, obviously these are mutated mold. Obviously, me as a linguist would know this. Yes. This must be where the red juice comes from. Why would you think that juice comes from mold, Chujo? Where did you get that from? <laughs> but he's like, yeah, this is probably where the drinks that the Genyomaru 2 sailors were talking about. Mm-hmm. He finds some carvings of text on a rock. As he's coming back, he gets trapped by some vines and he sees... Some blood-sucking vines. We don't know that yet. We just know that things are kind of like pulsing and there's weird music going on. And he sees some tiny women who are twins, right? Yes. So those are, we still refer to them as Shobijin. Uh, even though Shobijin just translates to tiny beauties, I believe. I hate it. Um, which is just a thing that they refer to them as in the, the movie. So we call them Shobijin. Later movies, they get referred to as the cosmos or the fairies or things like that. But um, these two are referred to as the Shobijin. The Shobijin are played by Yumi Ito and Emi Ito, who were a pop uh, musical group called the Peanuts at the time. The Peanuts were an incredibly popular 
twin musical group and they were they even did they were popular in japan they were popular in america at the time like if my grandparents if i went up to my grandfather and said who are the peanuts he would probably be able to tell and then he'd go on a rant and then he and then he talked for for a while about it um (laughs) but they were hired to play mothra's twin priestesses in Mothra, Mothra versus Godzilla, and Gija the Three-Headed Monster. And then it's a different pair of twins played them in, in one other Showa series. Or one other Showa series movie. Their voices were famously only slightly apart from each other, which gives them a unique sound when singing in harmony. They also... I, I didn't write down who has it. I believe it's Emmy has a mole next to one of her eyes. And so they would both paint the other one would paint a mole on her eye on the same side so that it was harder to tell them apart that's cool and i noticed in this movie that they both had moles painted on both sides of their faces it was just incorporated into the makeup exactly they famously picked up their lines very quickly and just picked up acting really fast and even faster, they picked up the skill of finishing each other's lines or talking at the same time, which was a big part of what they wanted for the the Shogun to do. And they just did it naturally because... I wonder if part of that is because they're used to learning songs together where they have to be singing at the same time. I have a feeling that that's exactly why. Yeah. Honda recalled years later that he was very impressed with both their professionalism and dedication. I mean, plus... They put in a concerted effort into being more in sync with each other outside of that and trying to be as indistinguishable as possible. Yeah. So that probably helps. I've been told that twins are, for some reason, more rare in Japan than they are in other places. Weird. Or at least maybe they were at the time. And so the fact that they were twins was, like, a big part of their their act. Their shtick. Yeah. But Chujo, trapped by the plants, faints. And he's found by the team and brought back to the ship. On the ship, when he's in kind of like the med bay, he says it was a blood-sucking plant and he was uh, saved by extremely small humans. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a funny way to say it. (laughs) And then he has a revelation. He just looks off and has a revelation. Mm -hmm. We don't know what it is, though. Yeah. And I don't know if we ever figure out what it is. Doesn't he, like, tell Zen, hey, do you want to know what it is? And Zen's like, yeah. And then he says, goodnight. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. So they go back out to find the women. And he... Oh, his revelation is that they must be sensitive to sounds because they responded to the alarm. Apparently that pulsing noise was the alarm on their suits. Yeah, there's a weird pulsing noise. And it just... It sounds very calming. It's like crickety. I would fall asleep to it. But what is the alarm for? The radiation? No, I think it's like if you get attacked oh you set off your own you alarm set off as the like alarm. a come help me yeah got it that's why they responded so quick yeah so they find the women using the same alarm sounds and they're talking to them and i put their language is like an 8-bit cricket yeah it's weird i don't understand this never comes up in any later movies and then they start talking like normal people later yeah so i don't know it's weird I told you this during the movie. I did not remember any of the first half of this movie. This whole first half of this movie, it's like I had never seen this movie before. <laughs> the second half of the movie, I remember very well. Well, the previous. second half is kind of like where it picks up. Yeah. 
But the first half of this movie is real weird and not good, yeah. in my opinion. But Chuja just understands this language for some reason. Mm-hmm. They just kind of explain it a way of him being a linguist. But this language that's not like any other human speech or sounds that we make. And he just knows what it means because he knows about Polynesia. It's it like it's it's like when you have a scientist in a movie who's a specialist in one thing and they could do everything. Ant-Man in the comics is an entomologist and also built Ultron because obviously if you're a scientist of any sort, you can, you know, do any sort of science thing. That's any what this STEM is. Thing. Exactly. <laughs> That's what this is. So he just knows that they're asking them not to harm, harm the island. The Japanese obviously promise not to hurt them. And then the Riliskins grab the women who suddenly turn into dolls for yeah, that scene. There's a lot of weird doll, like... In the whole movie, actually. Special effects in the whole movie. And it <laughs> doesn't look great. It It's definitely a big part of that is that we're watching it on Blu-ray and this movie was released not in Blu-ray. Right. But I think that those are... The worst part of the special effects of this movie. Yeah. Some of the Riliskins grab the women and then Nelson pulls a gun on the Japanese and says, these are a rare specimen. They're mine. Yeah. He's a cool guy. <laughs> he's great. And then the natives appear. They're, they, they're so threatening looking. They just bang rocks. It's just suddenly people start coming in from the edges of the forest and stare at them in brown face while they hold yeah. rocks and bang them together. All the natives in this movie are Japanese people wearing brown face. They don't talk at all. They bang rocks. It's not good. It's very bad, in fact. And I I honestly will talk about more why this movie has to do with the islands and stuff later in the podcast but this is clearly clearly native cultures being viewed through the lens of a an uh, colonizing culture colonizing force um japan was like the big colonizing force before and during world war ii in the east obviously there are others in the west so and this is only Again, 19 years after the Bataan Death March, Mm -hmm. this dehumanizing depiction just kind of both justifies treatment of other cultures by Japan, as well as kind of forgives it because it's saying, well, they're not people, they're just mindless animals, and so we could do whatever we want with them. I have a feeling that part of it is in reference to I honestly think that part of it is in reference to King Kong. King Kong, we have not watched. You haven't seen King Kong at all. I've only seen the animated King Kong. Yes. And I watched that a lot growing up. So we're going to definitely have to tackle that movie at some point. We will be watching the original King Kong at some point. And, I mean, this is true of one of its remakes also. It's very, very good, but has so much blackface. So much blackface. And so much... People pretending to be natives who are all dumb. Like, anytime King Kong comes up, that happens. The new legendary stuff hasn't done it. They've all, I believe all the leg- all the natives who are in Skull Island are actual natives of somewhere that I don't remember. We'll get there when we watch that movie. But 
like there's something about king kong and mothra specifically that they always have these really racist depictions of of native islanders it's gonna come up a lot yeah and i mean this is a time period where we were doing it too it's not oh, yeah. specific to japan it's just in the context of the treatment of the japanese people towards the filipino people and really all the pacific islanders yeah that context kind of just makes it really just extra gross yeah and again this is in a time period where we weren't really that much better we oh, yeah we were potentially significantly worse <laughs> America's treatment of Hawaiian, Native Hawaiians, and people of Cuba, like... Yeah, yeah. We aren't ones to talk. I'm not saying this from a position of moral superiority. Yeah. As somebody who's both American and Filipino. Yeah. Not saying this with any position of moral superiority. Just acknowledging that this is gross. Mm -hmm. So, as the Natives appear... The Japanese people demand of the Reliskins, as well as one of the Reliskins chimes in, that they let the women go. Nelson says, but we have guns. And the Dr. Hara orders all the other Japanese people to lower their weapons. So the Reliskins put down the women and the natives just leave. Yep. So fast forward to the end of the expedition. Everyone's returning home and nobody's saying anything about what they found. It's just radio silence from everyone, including Nelson. He seemed really pissed about it too everyone's crowding around his car as he's trying to leave the airfield and he's just not talking nobody is and it a paper says that no findings were announced and dr rock rushed home this guy that we have no idea who he is i know i don't understand his role in all this but whatever so after that chujo and zan are talking about the background that they can find on clark nelson and they show this (laughs) (laughs) this what is it like a biograph yeah it's it's like all the details they've gathered on him or it's like a a a short summary of his life and i just have to read one of the sentences from this please do after the world war second and this is typed in english so i literally just copied this down off of the paper from the screen after the world war second he made a vast fortune bed became a power at the back of entertainment world yeah there's a lot. It's it's a lot. <laughs> but it basically, it's trying to say that he uh, made his money going on to Native Islands and finding beautiful women and then putting them on stage. And that's literally what they say. Um, he went to the Amazon, quote, in search of beautiful women for entertainment. Zen believes that he... His whole job is stealing artifacts because of the rag he found. And Chucha shows him the rubbing he took of the text in the cave that is just... It's not a rubbing. Yeah, it's just paint. (laughs) He just drew it. Or that's what it looks like, at least. And he hadn't told the others because he was worried about Nelson finding the cave that he got this from. Zen points out that there's some repeating glyphs and he asks Chucha if he knows what it means. And she just says, well, using this Polynesian text, it clearly says Mothra. Yeah. How do you translate proper names off of a Rosetta Stone? I don't know, man. Look, I don't know. But Mothra's symbol's cool. It is, but how is that the first symbol you can translate is a proper name? I can see saying this is clearly a noun or a proper name of some kind, but we don't know what it says. But 
the fact that the first thing he translates is Mothra. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. They don't always go out of their way to tell us why the monster is named the thing they are. So I appreciate that. Like, she has like an origin to her name. But, yeah. The origin is Moth Monster. Actually, would you like to talk about that? <laughs> Mothra's name is obviously just the English moth plus Ra, right? Why Ra? Isn't Ra the like denotation of monster in Japanese language? Like, that's why it's Goji Ra, Moth Ra. It is, but not not that's not just a standard thing. It became that because of Godzilla. So you have Gojira, and ever since then it became really popular to put Ra at the end of monsters' names. Um, so basically her name is Mothzilla, and I think this is my petition to rename Mothra Mothzilla. I like Mothra better. I like Mothra better. Mothra flows better. Yeah. Because you have to really put a harsh stop between Moth and Zilla. Mothzilla. Maybe it'll be a, a an enemy of Mothra in a future movie. Like Mecha Mothra. That's a that that is a proposed thing that never made it to a movie. That and Gigamoth. I don't mind the idea of it. I don't like the name. They should no. definitely rename it if that's gonna <laughs> if they're gonna do some mechanized Mothra. They need to rename it, not Mecha Mothra. That see, it's even hard for me to say it now. Mecha Mothra doesn't have, flow. Pick a new name. How about Mechani Mothra? No, nope, doesn't help. So. In this time, after everyone's returned, Nelson and some of the Rolliskins go back to the island and capture the tiny women. And when the natives come out doing their rock thing, they just gun them all down. And they keep coming at them with just banging rocks. They're they don't have Throwing any... the rocks, they're just banging rocks. They don't even have any weapons at all. Which I think maybe is supposed to be like, these are peaceful people. Like, I think that's supposed to be what it is. But it's not good not great and they're not turning and running as they're being shot at yeah it just kind of underlines this whole like mindless animal yeah. depiction yeah it's not good as one of the natives is dying he runs to the shrine that they pray to and prays to mothra before he dies and as he does so some of the rock falls away and there's an egg there kind mm -hmm. of like daimajin you know what kind of <laughs> That machine was, what, five years later? So, a little bit. I've always liked how Mothra's egg looks. It's got a cool spiral pattern on it. I didn't notice that. Yep. In it's, my mind, it was just speckled. It. We don't see it a lot in this movie. We'll get good close-up shots of it when we watch, slash re-watch, Mothra vs. Godzilla. Amanda. <laughs> I don't have a good memory for media. Like, I... It actually really works out in my favor. I'll go back and read books I really like or an, or a movie I really like. And it's like watching it all over again <laughs> for the first time. It's great. Unless it's a, a series I really, really like and I've read it like 50 times, which does happen. But... Or you've taken detailed notes about it. Yeah, exactly. Because then I'm kind of forcing it into my memory. So pictures of Nelson posing with the women come out in the newspaper and... Zen's boss, the news editor, is mad because Zen didn't tell anyone. He didn't make a story about this. And Zen's like, well, how could I do this when nobody else is saying anything yeah. either? 
like, I'm a human before I'm a news reporter. Which is cool to see. You see a lot of depictions of news reporters who will do anything for a story. Yeah. And they're kind of shown as underhanded. Or, like, the truth is the most important thing. And to have that nuance, I actually really liked. We talked while we were watching the movie about Zen slash Frankie Sakai being treated as the butt of a joke because he's uh, he's overweight. And I don't think that actually ends up happening very much. He's a very sympathetic character and he's heroic and No, I, it's I cool. totally agree that this movie didn't do that. I just think that when you see an overweight character oh, yeah. in Japanese media, especially at this time period, they're almost always a comedian of some kind. Yeah. Usually in physical humor. Yeah. It's just that in this he also happens to be a very sympathetic, heroic character at the yeah. same time. I think that's a, a cool thing for him to be able to do in the 60s. Yeah. So, we cut to the Secret Fairies show. Mm-hmm. Zen, Michi, Chujo, and his younger brother Shinji have shown up to watch the show. The women are brought out on a tiny carriage a little, from... <laughs> little flying carriage. From the roof. And it, you could see the wires that sure. it's being brought down on. On stage, they sing about Mothra. They do the famous Mothra song. They sing Mothra's song. With natives. In, I put this in quotes because they're clearly more Japanese people in brown face. Yeah, and I think in universe they're Japanese, Japanese people, people in brown, people in brown face. face. Um, dancing around their little platform as the crowd clamors to get a, a view. So Mothra's song is something that shows up in every movie that has Mothra. Uh, either like very overtly or it just like is woven, in, woven into the uh, the soundtrack of it. And was composed by the composer for this movie, who is not Akira Kube. That was very clear. Yeah. All the soundtrack was kind of like action scene. Yeah, he's he's fine. Uh, his name is Yuji Koseki, and he's he's fine. He's a very competent composer. But Ifukube brings something special to the movies. Yeah, that he... Ifukube, his soundtracks feel like classical music yeah it brings a kind of a a seriousness to the movie yeah. that like a new dimension of i want to say drama but i mean like of it increases the mood like it changes the mood yeah the it adds a level of seriousness to it yeah and this movie the soundtrack sounds like a movie soundtrack yeah it just sounds like an action movie um yuji koseki was born in 1909, died 1989, and he is a Japanese composer most famous for compo- outside of Japan for composing Mothra's song. But in Japan, he is actually most well known for composing marches. He apparently, I read this on Wikipedia, so you know, he apparently is known as the Japanese John Philip Sousa, which it's I think funny. is I think it's a funny thing. But Mothra's song is actually not performed in Japanese. Do you know some of John Philip Sousa's songs? Um, I can't say off the top of my head. He does Stars and Stripes Forever. Ah, uh, that's right. Let me double check that. We played that in band. <laughs> I bet you played it a lot. Um, Mothra's song is actually not performed in Japanese. Yeah, you were telling me that during the movie, but you couldn't remember what language it was in. He uh, actually went to some... I believe he found some Indonesian students that were in Japan, and he had them like help him write the lyrics and stuff so it is done in i believe the language is called bahasa which is a regionalized version of malay which is like the main indonesian 
and Malaysian language. And I think that is very cool, actually. Yeah, it adds a level of respect for culture that the rest of the movie doesn't really have. Now, is the song pronounced correctly in Bahasa slash Malay? No, (laughs) it's all pronounced in Japanese ways of pronouncing things. But that I get. That's hard to, yeah. it's a different language, whatever. And the Peanuts are not going to learn a different language just for this one song. It's fine. Um, Just the level of effort that was put into having some sort of cultural respect, I I appreciate. Yeah. If you hear meowing in the background, by the way, our cat is running around the house being as loud as possible. and (laughs) Which is par for the core for him. We're trying to... Par for the core, I'm sorry. Yeah. We're trying to be... We're trying to cut it out as much as possible, but it may not be possible. So while they're watching, Chujo told Zen that Professor Rock didn't want to do the expedition and he only agreed after Nelson offered to pay for the whole thing, which was why Nelson was in charge of it. Back on Infant Island, while the women are singing, they're cutting back and forth, they show shots of the natives dancing and singing, and it kind of looks like bad hula dancing. Mm-hmm. Not like stereotypical hula dancing, but like a bad attempt to do actual hula dancing. Sure, sure. Some of the like strongest looking torsos on those men, though. Like some real, I did not notice that. Like they they are very fit, just in general. Everyone there, they just said, "Gather up your fittest dancers." I mean, being a professional dancer kind of requires it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But while they're dancing, they're singing the same songs that the that the women are singing, and they're drinking the red juice, which looks gross. It just is so thick and bright red. It looks like the inside of a gusher. It does. <laughs> Gross. Michi tries to get in for an interview with the women, but Nelson tries to kick her out. He says, they don't even speak Japanese. They don't speak our, any of our languages. Get out of here. Chucha and Zen come in and demand that Nelson release the women. He says, they're merchandise. They're happy when they sing. If there is any sign that this movie is anti-capitalism, that that is one of the big ones, is that he's taken people and are, is treating them as merchandise. He finally agrees to let Chujo Zen and Michi see the women for three minutes, but he doesn't let Michi in until he takes her cameras. Once they get to talk to the women, it turns out they actually do speak Japanese, and they also have a form of telepathy. So they can talk to people with their mind, or they can communicate their emotions with people from far away. Which is how they call Mothra. Yeah, but I I didn't understand if they were talking to the natives or if they were talking to Mothra. They definitely talk directly to Mothra in other movies. Yeah, and in this movie. And in this movie. But I don't know if they also communicate with the natives or not. Probably. They're very powerful. Like, despite the fact that they were picked up by a dude and shoved in a box, uh, they're actually very powerful. Um, So then Meiji pulls out her lighter camera. And takes a picture of them real quick. Yep. And then um, the women say, we will get home, but there's going to be a great misfortune on Japan. Mothra will come. Yeah. As the natives are dancing, they're praying to Mothra, and she appears as a larva from the egg. A beautiful, ugly worm. <laughs> so uh, this is the first time that we see Mothra. Would you like to describe Larva Mothra for us? The beautiful, ugly worm. It kind of looks like somebody took the moon and then, like, squished it into the shape of, like, one of those conical shells. Uh, okay, yeah. 
It's an interesting way to describe it, but I like it. Just because of the coloration and the pockmarks. Yeah. She's got little indentations. She's got blue eyes. Got Can't a, tell that. Got a beak. The beak did not look good in some shots. It looked very plastic. Well, yeah. Again, I think that's the Blu-ray thing. The special effects director for this movie was, as can be predicted, Eiji Tsuburaya of Godzilla and Rodan and a whole bunch of other stuff. Ultraman. I can definitely see the Ultraman in the Larval Mothra. What? No, I can't. I, okay. I was just making a joke. I'm sorry. All right. But yeah, this is the first time we see Mothra. We'll we'll talk about more details about that prop slash suit for the Mothra larva when we get to those scenes. Can I just say I accidentally wrote Japap in my notes instead of Japan? Japap. <laughs> Call up Japap. <laughs> I don't know what that joke even means. I don't know. It sounds like Pappy. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, Nelson and his lackeys show up at the at the news station to complain to the editor about a story they posted with a picture of the woman behind bars looking really sad, and the news editor being actually a good boss refuses to withdraw the story. Zen comes running up and tells the editor about a large floating object in the South Pacific, and says that it's Mothra. It's a worm. It is a worm. Or a caterpillar. Larva. Yeah. They're doing another show of the women singing, and somebody from the radio is there broadcasting their music, and it's being heard on this ship in the South Pacific. And I think that Mothra hears them singing through the speakers of the ship, because then she attacks that ship. Yeah, but she definitely heard them when she hatched, also. Yeah, And it's coming in that direction. I think that's why she attacked that ship, though. I think it was just in the way. No, I think that's why she attacked the ship, is because she heard their distress call coming from the ship. Maybe. That's possible. Don't discount my theories. I, I, okay. You're right. <laughs> Nelson holds a press conference denying all blame for the attack on the ship and says that the tiny beauties like what they do. They love it. They love being in a cage. Zen and Chuja argue that he should return the women before Mothra gets to Tokyo because that would be bad. Yes, it would. And... Nelson makes a plan to leave Japan. To escape to Rolissica. Chujo and Zen get in to talk to the women. And in order to do so, they get kind of blocked by men from some of the Rolliskin men who are Nelson's bodyguards. And Zen says, go on without me. I'll stay behind and fight these guys and I'll be right there. And you think it'll go terribly because this guy's all about like, body humor yeah but it actually goes really well he fights them off it's not the most like elegant fight in the world but he uses his his physical humor in combat yeah yeah and i mean he does throw some punches and it seems fine yeah and then he actually does hold up the whole security detail thing that chujo gave him single-handedly and it's probably like what seven men i think it's four is it four yeah well four seven same thing (laughs) <laughs> four in one hand seven in the other so he goes in to join chujo as chujo's asking the women to turn mothra back and they said they'd like to but mothra doesn't know the difference between good and evil she just is coming to save them right chujo asks dr harada if he can block their telepathy somehow and dr harada shows them the synthetic material used in nuclear reactors that can stop all wave energy 
soot. Sure. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> and that they plan to make a box from it of it so that they can hide the women and keep their telepathy from calling Mothra into the center of Tokyo. Now, how they're supposed to breathe in this box? Who knows? Because there are definitely no air holes. No. Magic. Magic science. <laughs> a plane spots Mothra coming in from the ocean and calls her a hundred meters. She's twice the size of Godzilla. I mean, as she... a larva. Lengthwise. Yeah. She's not as tall as Godzilla. Imagine two Godzillas lying down and then crawling through the city. It's a pretty adorable vision. Pretty adorable image in my head. I like it. I just pictured like having two dolls on their bellies in the same Godzilla pose mm-hmm. and then being like pushed by a kid. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> and so they scramble the jets. The editor puts out a headline that says Mothra to be annihilated at sea. And Michi feels bad for Mothra. They're very confident. I know. Zen comes up with a uh, report saying that Reliska has put in their support for Nelson, saying that they defend the property rights of their people overseas in case it wasn't clear that the country was complicit. Yeah, exactly. And then Mothra's dead. Forever. (laughs) Well, at least Nelson thinks so. They're all celebrating and drinking in their office. But Dr. Harada, who's there for some reason, says it's too soon. Oh, he's there because they brought the new box. Oh, yeah. Duh. Yeah. yeah. And Nelson says, well, thanks. We're not going to need it, but thanks. And then invites Zen, Dr. Harada, and Chujo to the show, that uh, the next showing of the women. As he's doing so, he gets a call saying that the show's been shut down by the Japanese police. And Michi arrives just in time to tell them that there's a dam that's in danger. Yeah. Because that's her role. (laughs) To let everyone know what's going on. Basically, she runs up and says like, hey guys, did you hear? Yeah. That's all she does the whole movie. She does it a lot. So they rush over to the dam. The dam is cracking. Well, and before uh, this, we saw the people at the dam working there and we got some other we got some more good physical humor as the like the guy had like a rice ball in his mouth and it, oh, i thought it was like mochi or something it might have been mochi he had like mochi in his mouth and he was like Woo! and <laughs> it was very funny when they spot mothra from the tower exactly yeah so the reporters chujo and dr rada rush to the dam as it's like cracking in the office, Nelson is yelling at the women as they sing in their cage for Mothra and then put has them, like, the lackeys put the telepathic blocking box over their cage. Sure. And Mothra breaks through the dam. So um, this couple's fleeing with a cart of their stuff mm-hmm, mm-hmm. across the dam. Across a bridge that's in front of the dam. Yeah, but... Why are, Why is this family here at this dam? There might be a village nearby. I don't know. But they're, they're running across the bridge and then their baby who's in a basket falls off the back of their cart and neither of them notice because... There's a lot going on. Yeah, I guess. I feel like I would have my eyes on the baby the whole time. And the woman's not holding anything. She could just be holding the baby. Yeah. It falls off and they get across the bridge and then they notice and obviously try to go back for the kid, but... People hold them back, so Zen rushes up, grabs the baby, and runs back with her. Or him. The baby. The baby. <laughs> so, like you were talking about, he does get some heroic moments. Yeah, he, he gets 
quite a few actually. It's it's pretty cool. I was definitely expecting Chujo to be the one that saves the baby because usually the pretty actor is the one who gets to be the heroic actor. Yeah. He's got the more traditionally handsome look. And right as he grabs the baby, the bridge collapses behind him and then Mothra disappears. So Nelson declares that he isn't giving up. He's being stubborn, obviously, because mm-hmm. that he is just villainous to the end. And then Shinji, Chujo's younger brother, breaks in to the, like, Relisican headquarters. Well, he, ba- he The stage area. Yeah, it's the stage. The backstage. I just meant the Relisican team, like, kind of where they're headquartered. Sure. To try to see the women and then break them out. He gets in and sees them and he grabs their cage and then he gets caught and kind of beat up by the goons. Sure. The Relisican government puts out a notice that they're not backing nelson anymore and that he has to give up the women yeah and they put out a search for him zen and michi go to see the police show up at the headquarters because they're reporters well they're reporters and also they said they wanted to see his face it's a little bit of that vindication moment definitely and chucho shows up at the same time because shinji's here so they rush in when they find this out and they find shinji tied up and kind of stash under a couch i think it was i think so (laughs) and they untie him mothra's back she's wrecking tokyo heading towards shibuya the only reason i know that shibuya is in tokyo is because the shibuya station yeah yeah um so she's making a mess of tokyo there's fire everywhere people the jets are bombing her and there's evacuations tanks are coming in and this is our next shot of the dolls is the tanks are clearly being pulled on wires and there's like little dolls of soldiers sticking out of the tanks. Yeah, it's not amazing. <laughs> um, you don't even need dolls there. Just have them be closed tanks. Yeah, why do you have to have people sticking at the top? That I don't get. So part of the issue is that the special effects for this movie are being done at a larger scale than in other movies. And the reason for that is that the larval Mothra costume because it is a costume not a prop in this scene as it's approaching as it's going through the outside of shibuya and approaching what we'll eventually see it's approaching tokyo tower is one of the largest suits that they ever built at toho uh it's six feet tall 33 feet long jeez and weighed 120 kilograms or 265 pounds it's basically like the length of two cars. Yeah. Back to back. It. If not longer. It was operated by eight actors at once. And. So it's basically just like a Chinese dragon suit. It is basically. But a larva. Yes. Exactly. A less cool one. <laughs> and among those eight actors were Haruo Nakajima. Who traditionally plays Godzilla. And Katsumi Tezuka. Who was the guy we talked about in the first episode. Who. Oh, he was technically in it, but none of his scenes made the cut. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) Was Haruo Nakajima the head? I believe so. Yeah. Because he probably also was manipulating the mouth and stuff. Uh, Maybe. I never thought about that. But yeah, you're probably right. And so that's why things are, things, the cities look different and the dolls are a thing and stuff like that. Because they had to make everything much bigger. You have to see more detail. In the first one, it was clearly just like dollhouse sized buildings. And in this one... They have to be, like, room-sized buildings. Exactly. Like, Rodan, 
one of the great things about the the scenes in that movie is that it's the right kind of the right level of detail that it looks super realistic. You have the tiles flying mm-hmm. off and there's some other great details. In this, I think stuff is too big and it starts just looking like models. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely some issues with scale. But for that, it looks fantastic. It still looks really good. Yeah. yeah. And the movement of Mothra as a larva looks really good and really natural. Can you imagine being the actor cast to play the eighth one? <laughs> you see, you see that that's me. Not not that part. That you see the last little segment. That's me. Yeah, and I bet the people at the the tail end were like crawling. Essentially, I have a feeling that that's the case because it's six feet tall at the tallest point, which is the head. So, yeah, not not a great job. Not a great job to have. They did a good job. Yeah, yeah. So during all this, Nelson and his goons are stuck in traffic and Mothra's larva form starts to climb Tokyo Tower until it basically collapses on top of her. Right. The The Japanese government calls for a ceasefire just as Mothra starts spitting a web out and it hits a helicopter that's flying overhead and causes it to fall. Yeah. This... And then starts building a cocoon. Yeah. The silk that spit out by the larva was created by dissolving rubber paste with thinner and then spraying it through an airbrush that was installed inside the larval Mothra's What a good way to do that. Mm -hmm. They do it differently in later movies, but for this movie, yeah, it's it's a dissolved rubber paste. Imagine it's pretty toxic. That's not why they changed it. I think the later stuff is more toxic. Oh, no. Um, But we'll... Did they gunk up the sprayer? I don't know. Probably. I imagine it would. Yeah. <laughs> but I really liked the detail of how she built a cocoon using the toppled half of Tokyo Tower and kind of creating a little lean-to out of yeah. that. That was such a good detail. That was probably one of my favorite details in the movie. Yeah. And Tokyo Tower is brand new at this point. It was built three years previously, 1958. I wonder if anyone working on the movie got some vindication because you know how when Paris in the when the Eiffel Tower was built, everybody hated it. They thought it was super ugly. Sure. I wonder if there's somebody who made this decision in the movie who's getting a little bit of vindication from Maybe. destroying it. I think it was just like the new hotness, right? It's like the thing everyone's really excited That's about. That's fair. Um, and so you put it in your movie, blow it up. <laughs> Tokyo Tower is one of those buildings that has been blown up. So many times. It's like the Statue of Liberty that always gets destroyed in apocalyptic movies. Yeah, yeah. 30 days later. Mm-hmm. 30 days later? A certain amount of time later. <laughs> Again, Dr. Harada's talking about we need to return the woman before she becomes an adult. There's a lot of mention to we have to do this before she becomes an adult because everyone's knowing she's A, going to get bigger. Yep. And B, going to be more destructive. She's clearly a larva. Yeah, she's a baby. So Nelson's missing... We see him over at the Rilliskin Embassy. I think, I'm assuming that's what it is. He's being given a new identity. They say, you're George Walker now. You're a member of the Rilliskin Embassy. And then he's seen at the airport trying to get through. He's got like sunglasses on and his hat pulled low. Yeah. He gets stopped. and They ask what's in his suitcase. And he says, why are you trying to take a look? And they're like, no, never mind. Sorry, sir. Go ahead after they check his it's, ID. It's clearly the Relisican guy says, no, you can move on. And the Japanese guy is like suspicious about it. Yeah. Like, I think that was a very interesting scene. Yeah. 
Because they're using a Reliskin man as like a translator. Yeah. The editor tells Zen, what are you doing covering this this cocoon? Nothing's happening here. Anyone could be covering this. Everyone is covering this. Go find Nelson. So they head to the airport where they assume he's trying to leave the country. Rightly. Oh, definitely. The Reliskin ambassador is holding a press conference where he's promising to help in whatever way Reliska can. They promise to lend Japan their atomic heat cannons. And promise to get it there before the adult Mothra emerges. I don't know how they have any idea of how long she's going to be cocooned for. Because usually I think it's for a period of days or weeks for most bugs. Yeah, I don't know. And her being so big, you'd think it would be longer because it's more that has to be changed. But Tur- Turned into goop and yeah. then reformed into a butterfly. Basically what I'm trying to say is she's absolutely unique. I have, They should have no idea how long she's going to be in a cocoon for. Yes, I agree. So... The atomic heat ray guns, uh, as they are called, are, I believe, the first, like, sci-fi weapons we see, we've seen on this podcast. Except for in Godzilla vs. Megaguirus, don't they have a black hole gun? Yeah, I guess that's true. What I mean is, this is the first, these are the first, like, military like sci-fi tanks, sci-fi airplanes, like standard military stuff, but with sci-fi attached to them. They are what will eventually become the Mazer tanks. And we will definitely see Mazer tanks later. Uh, Mazer tanks? Mazer tanks. What does that mean? Uh, it's just the name of, they basically shoot a lightning beam. We will see Mazer tanks later on. These are like the proto version of a Mazer tank. Mazer tanks are... Very popular among the uh, Godzilla community. Like, they are one of the the cool, like, sci-fi things that the Godzilla, like, series has built. And this is, like, the the beginning of it. I personally like the curry cooking mini robots in a hat better. I suppose. (laughs) Um, That's my favorite technology from the series so far. I had a... There was... When I was younger, I bought godzilla stuff from a store online and i wish i could remember the name of it i don't even know how i would look it up it doesn't i don't think it exists anymore but the lady who ran it when you bought stuff from her she would finish the emails with mazer tanks instead of major thanks and i always thought that was really cute it's weird so they get the atomic heat cannons to the cocoon and they're these big satellite dish looking things on Mm -hmm. the back of a truck and they shoot them at the cocoon which catches on fire and the web around it kind of burns away it is engulfed in flame it is the whole thing turns brown and everyone's congratulating themselves good show sir yeah (laughs) patting themselves in the back (laughs) 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 and nelson being in reliska at this point in his in his home. His in, ranch. In his ranch. Thank you. It hears this on the radio that Mothra is dead and turns off the radio and they're all celebrating and congratulating each other. <laughs> <laughs> and he opens the cage so that the, the he takes the box off of the cage right. so that the women can sing and says, sing as much as you want. Nothing's going to happen. Yeah. And then, of course, Mothra emerges from the cocoon. Maybe the heat guns just 
made things go quicker. It's like microwaving her. It's, it's it's like microwaving a potato to make it go faster. It's like an egg where you heat, you give it heat so that it'll hatch faster. Yeah. So Mothra, Mothra has just appeared. I love Mothra. Mothra's very good. Mothra. She's so fuzzy. I just want to give her a hug. Yeah. She's very, very fuzzy in this movie. Uh, and I love that. Her eyes are really well done. They look like compound eyes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To make those compound eyes, they used a rod to poke dents into the plastic while it was still soft. Oh, cool. Which what is a good a, way to do that. A clever way to do it. And I know her wings are really simple. It, when she's emerging, they're literally just, you could tell, they're like rods that are kind of getting um, unspooled with like a filmy material for the actual wings. And then when she's flying, they're they're pretty simplistic. They don't really have a lot of control on their own. But I think that when she's flying, the motion of the wings is still really good. Like the tips yeah. move more than the part close to her, which you don't necessarily expect if it's being controlled at the body. I just think it's it's pretty well done. Yeah. There were actually two models of Imago Mothra. Imago is just a word for an adult insect. So there's two, there's two models of Imago Mothra. The larger with a two meter or six six and a half foot wingspan. Because it has to be used on the same scale that the larva was. Or a similar scale at the very least, yeah. I just mean like they're not going to remake the models for a right. different Mothra. Right. So the wings could flap more realistically. They were made with fabric over a wicker frame, which gives them the elegant flapping that you were talking about. Hey, that's what I said. And she's great. Uh, I, like, Mothra is different from every other monster. Because Mothra is, by her very nature, she's a mystical thing in a world full of, like, sci-fi radioactive yeah sort of things i mean they did give her a little bit of a radioactive in beginning this movie. yeah but which is her this is her origin movie yeah. so yeah but she you know she talks psychically to priestesses who yeah. are tiny and that's never explained and she's and very godlike the fact that she's being worshipped she has a symbol exactly she responds to that worship and protects the people under her care and in nearly every movie you see her have this cycle of birth death and rebirth she doesn't die in this movie unless you count her turning you know the larva form turning into an adult as a sort of a death and rebirth but she's kind of all about that cycle which i've seen some people say that she's like a jesus figure because of that and hey jesus did not invent the death and rebirth thing that is very much hindu slash buddhist concept so i think that mothra more is like tapping into that like the buddhist concepts of of reincarnation and i just think that that's really cool like i mentioned earlier she's regularly been determined to be one of the most popular kaiju ever she's always in the top four do you want to guess pretty in a cast of very kind of ugly sure she's different adorably ugly monsters all the other monsters are very spiky they're very muted browns and greens they all are a little clunky looking sure and she's colorful and pretty and Mm. elegant exactly she's it if nothing else she is different Mm mm-hmm um, do you want to guess who the top four most popular monsters are? Godzilla. Yes, number one. 
Um, Extra points if you can say them in order. If you can guess them in order. Where are you getting this from? There's no, there's no hard order for popularity. In recent polls. Okay, fine. Godzilla, King Ghidorah. Well, I already told you Mothra's number two. Did you? Earlier in the episode I did. Okay. Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, Giant Monster Solid Attack. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, Mega Gears. Uh, Rodan. Rodan? Rodan is number three, and then King Ghidorah is number four. And then usually Mechagodzilla is number five. But That's a boring list. That's just like the top. That's just like the common four. Duh. Yes. Y'all need to get more interesting favorites. <laughs> um, I really like Megagirus. I think Megagirus is up there for me because Megagirus looks rad. Yeah, Megagirus is really cool. I think Mothra and Megagirus are my top two you so like, far. You like bug ladies. I do. But, like, I think part of it is that the wing motion is easier for them to do than the... Debatably. Easier for them to do without looking as corny, where the suit ones, they're wrestling. You and I have... You have not seen all of the movies I have. No, but the ones we've seen. Where they attempt flight. (laughs) I really like the flight motions that we've seen so far. Sure. I just think there's something more elegant about wings as a yeah. compo- as compared to like so when the the flight ones are moving there's not as much like folds from fabric sure sure as you get from the suits that's just kind of hard to escape from like around sure. the the thigh area I get that and they have a more elegant motion to them as mm. opposed to like having to like do boxing motions or wrestling yeah I, I get that I really like them, and I think their face designs are naturally easier to do because you don't have to have the face as manipulative. Sure. Because Mothra doesn't move her face. Mm-hmm. And Mega Gears just has a rad face. Yeah. Last tidbit I want to say about Mothra herself. Uh, she was also, we kind of touched on this earlier also, she was the first monster from a standalone film to be brought into the Godzilla series. King Kong. From a standalone Toho movie. Standalone Toho movie uh, to be brought into the Godzilla series. There are problems with this comparison, but you could say it's like an MCU, a full 50 to 60 years before Iron Man. There's no strict continuity in Toho movies, so it's not a perfect... There's no continuity at all in any Toho movies. Even all the movies that say they're from Godzilla cut out the part where Godzilla died. That is wrong. Um... But no, I'm right. <laughs> I'm always right. <laughs> there are, in fact, parts of Godzilla's canon From where what I've seen, where there is a strict canon. There's a strict continuity in the 90s. There's a soft continuity in the Showa series. From what I've seen. Anyway, my point is they were eating Marvel's lunch before Marvel was a thing. Eating Marvel's lunch? Is that a phrase? Yeah, it's a thing. Is it? Yeah. That's rude. Poor Marvel getting some moldy-ass lunch. <laughs> so Mothra's here and she's wrecking stuff. Her wings are causing wind that's rip that's causing tanks to go flying and ripping tiles off of roofs. There's actually a really good shot that seems like it has really good physics where a tank goes tumbling and the gun on it pierces a, a pipe and causes water to... Yeah. To spout out, and I thought that the physics of that looked really good. It's really cool. And then she heads to Relisica. Nelson and his cronies are overhearing a radio report saying that Relisica is being devastated by Mothra, 
And there's a giant man search for Nelson. I don't know why they can't find him in his own ranch. Look I at know. his own home first. Go, go to his house. He is there. So Chujo, Zen, and Michi are asked to come to Relisica because they're kind of the experts at this point, I guess. Not Dr. Harada, but the reporter who wasn't supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. And the photographer who wasn't there. Yep. But it's because they have are the only people who've been known to talk to the twins. And actually communicate yeah, with them as well. That makes sense. And they need to find Nelson and get the women and return them to the island before Riliska is basically devastated. Mm-hmm. More than it already is. So Mothra has shown up in a city called New Kirk City. What could that possibly be a reference to? <laughs> Star Trek? Yeah. It's the city of Captain Kirk. <laughs> no, it's supposed to be New York City, obviously. What? Definitely a Star Trek reference. Mm-hmm. Nelson is driving and he stops at a stop sign and gets swarmed by a bunch of angry Relisicans. He has a flashback to the natives surrounding them on the island and pulls a gun out and starts shooting people until he gets killed by the police. The lackeys are arrested and you can see they still have the briefcase with the women in it. Mm -hmm. And the crowd is pushing at the police officers to return the women. A police car pulls up with the Japanese people inside zen michi and chujo and meanwhile mothra is just wrecking new kirk city this is the worst and best effects in the movie you see some dolls some little like they almost look like poly pockets uh-huh. in the window as display mannequins yeah it's not great <laughs> it's not good but mothra does like fly over a, a city like street that's crowded with cars and all the cars go flying and it that i think that looks really cool yeah for the most part it's good i just meant that one window shot (laughs) is just really bad sure and so the church bells start ringing and chujo looks up and he sees the sun directly behind a cross on a church nearby yeah and he gets an idea he says that the sun behind the cross looks like mothra's symbol Mm -hmm. and the bells sound like mothra's song I think that they were playing Mothra's song, but it's very hard to tell with bells. I know. There's only like three notes. Yeah. So he goes up to the Reliskins, the police who are there, and asks them to have the symbol for Mothra drawn on the airfield and have the church bells rung at three o'clock. And the person who responds to them... Emperor Antonio! ...is Robert Dunham, who is plays Emperor Antonio in Megalon. Yeah. I just thought I'd mention that. He has a new job. He, well, this came before Megalon. So he went from Relisican Cop to Emperor of Cetopia. Oh. Moving up in life. I guess. Physically down. And I have a question for you. How is he an emperor of... Cetopia. Cetopia. Are there other colonies of Cetopia? Don't think... Look. Don't think about it too hard. That's a different movie. And it's not a good one. Just saying. I like that movie. Thank you very much. It's not well written. Jet Jaguar is in it. You're right. You're right. So they start the ritual. They've painted this giant symbol of Mothra on the airfield. And the bells are ringing. And she, they mention that she's calmer. She heads to the airfield and just kind of sets down on it and just rests. And she's very calm. So they um, bring the woman out of their cage and let them run off to the to Mothra. And they have this very heartfelt goodbye. And then the women run off and Mothra flies off theoretically with the women somewhere on her. Yeah. 
and Michi forgot to take photos. And she exclaims <laughs> this, so Chuja laughs because it's a callback to she's not used to yeah. experiencing, experiencing things outside of her camera. So right. the fact that she's learned to kind of... to see the world outside of our camera it's character growth for a character that we barely saw yeah exactly and then there's one more racist scene of the native dancing yeah and and then the movie ends just had to get one more in there just one more for good measure so i want to talk about uh some of the people who made this movie one was ashiro honda we've talked about ashiro honda we've talked about there was Haruo Nakajima. Haruo Nakajima, yep. And Katsumi Tezuka both played Mothra. Larval Mothra. We talked about Yuji Koseki, who did the music. Uh, Tomoyuki Tanaka was uh, the producer again, as he pretty much was through all of the Showa films. And then the special effects was by... Eiji Tsuburaya. I wanted to call him Seiji for some some reason. (laughs) Eiji Tsuburaya. Eiji Tsuburaya, yep. But the writer for this is someone that I've been wanting to talk about for a while. Uh, His name is Shinichi Sekizawa. We mentioned him on the Godzilla vs. Megalon episode. I was going to say, the name is familiar. I said that I did not want to talk about him on that episode. Oh, because it was a bad example of his his movies. Yeah, because it's a low point for him. But Shinichi Sekizawa is an incredibly important part of where this genre came from uh he wasn't there from the beginning obviously he wasn't there he didn't write the first godzilla movie or anything like that but he had a huge influence on the direction that the genre went he's the one who basically established that the monsters didn't have to die at the end that's part of it yeah definitely so he was born in 1921 and died in 1992 he died the year before i was born there you go uh, like Ishiro Honda, he served in World War II, uh, and his time in the military strongly influenced his career. Much of his time was spent on isolated islands in the South Pacific, starving and struggling to get by. Most Shinichi Sekizawa movies have some sort of island on them because it really influenced kind of what he, how he interpreted the world. I interpret the world as a series of islands. <laughs> He specifically, his screenplays revolve around weird stuff happening on South Pacific Islands because oh, fair. that's what happened to him in World War II. I wonder how much his experience in the military affected his relationship with the director and if they had similar views because of that background, that shared background. There is definitely a through line for a lot of these people. They served in World War II. And are now making things that are about peace or getting past the point of violence. Shinichi Sekizawa is infamous as a profound optimist. You make that sound like it's a bad thing. He, he's just such an intense optimist and was considered silly by a lot of his colleagues. He was never concerned with making the things he wrote take themselves too seriously. And is often he's often considered the person most involved with the process of quote unquote lightening up Godzilla to making Godzilla not just a symbol of the, the atomic fallout or whatever. He's a hero or he's 
they it aimed more towards kids or all of these things. They so he's what made Godzilla corny. A little bit. Yeah, because he wasn't concerned with things taking themselves too seriously. But he also still tried to make important... He still tried to say important things with his movies. You don't have to have a super serious movie to have a message that is important. We see a little bit in Mothra, um, the anti-consumerist, anti-capitalist stuff. But all of his movies have... I I don't know if I could say all of his movies, because Megalon also doesn't really have it. But most of his movies, even though they're light and fun, he's still saying things that are important. So whether you think that's a bad thing or not, it's obviously up to personal opinion. It can't be ignored that Sekizawa had an intense an intense impact on the industry as a whole. I would say most most Godzilla movies fit into two categories: either the Sekizawa category or the original Godzilla category, where it is either a very serious drama piece or it's a little hokey. Sure. Not necessarily that hokey's bad or that hokey doesn't have things to say, but it, it kind of fits either into hokey or like very serious, sad movie. And the Godzilla fan community is also kind of split in half that way. So if you think about it, if Honda, Tanaka, Ifukube, Tsuburaya, and Nakajima are the ones who invented the genre... Sekizawa is can, can be considered to have refined it to what it is, along with his contemporary, a writer named Kaori Mabuchi, who we talked about in the Rodan episode. We talked about how Mabuchi was known to be dour and pessimistic <laughs> and wrote about like political and scientific things that he had learned and all this stuff. I mean, the Rodan death scene was just the most depressing. Exactly. So the fact that you have these two writers who are colleagues and friends, even though they have completely different worldviews, shapes those two worlds of kaiju films. You have the very serious, very dour stuff from Mabuchi, and you have the more lighthearted but still saying something Um, stuff from Shinichi Sekizawa. And I mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, but before Sekizawa came along, Japanese monster movies followed a pretty standard structure, which they borrowed from American monster movies. The monster appears, humans discover how to defeat the monster, humans stop the monster in the last moments of the movie. Sekizawa, like I mentioned before, flipped that on its head, saying that monsters can be involved with the plot. In the new plot structure, humans fight humans for one reason or another, a monster appears, and that changes the conflict. Rodan came out five years before it. Rodan dies in a tragic death in a volcano, while in Mothra, the humans give the threatening monster the thing that it wants. The conflict is solved through understanding the monster, not through killing it. And I would say that Rodan is firmly the villain, where Mothra is basically Liam Neeson from Taken. He, she is just trying to get back. Yeah. Her children in this, or in this case, her priestesses. Exactly. Exactly. And I just, I think that all of that is just really, really interesting. And also because you're not killing the monster at the end of the movie and the goal of the movie isn't to get rid of the monster, it's to understand the monster, you can see more personality come out of the monsters. And that has always been a distinction in my eyes between Japanese kaiju movies and American monster movies. Monsters in American movies don't tend to have 
the same level of personality as Japanese mutants. And That's fair. I think a lot of that is on Sekizawa's shoulders. So, two episodes ago, in Godzilla vs. Megaguirus, you proposed the concept of a slice-of-life series. <laughs> um, Starring Dwayne Johnson and Tilda Swinton? Yeah, I said that Godzilla would be Dwayne The Rock Johnson. You said that he would be Matt Damon. <laughs> I don't remember why you said Matt Damon. I don't either, actually. <laughs> you don't remember why you said Matt Damon. And Megagiris, I said Kate Blanchett, and you said Tilda Swinton. And I'm still happy with both of those. Those are both pretty solid choices. Who might play Mothra? So, I would say Mothra has strong protective mother vibes sure so have you ever seen that show meet the goldbergs a bit yeah you know the mom in that show who like anytime she feels like her son might have been slighted she comes storming in and she like kicks butt yeah yeah definitely i mean mothra is more justified than that but it has very strong mothra vibes right there yeah no i could definitely see the what is her name wendy a mcclendon covey it's a mouthful Plays Beverly Goldberg. I can see her. Or recently, Queen Latifah started a new sh- a new series, and I only saw the first ten minutes of the pilot. And I've really been wanting to go back and watch more, but I've got strong Queen Latifah vibes from that too. Sure, sure. Like there's this girl who's in trouble, and Queen Latifah comes storming in. She kicks butt, and she like wipes the floor with three or four guys with guns, and just walks out with the girl. Yeah, it's exactly that. Mm -hmm. But in a full-length movie. Yeah, yeah. The, like, protective mom vibes makes me think of um, Constance Wu's character in Fresh Off the Boat also. I get it. (laughs) I I could see her also doing a good Mothra in our made-up show. We really need to go back to Fresh Off the Boat. I really like that series. Yeah, it's very good. And then, of course, our age-old question. Who do you recommend Mothra for? I would say that Mothra is actually a pretty good introduction movie for anyone who wants to show somebody what a kaiju movie is. Yeah. it's. I think it's a pretty good movie. There's definitely large chunks of problematic parts. Mm-hmm. But the fact that the villain is super villainous and over the top and you have this very interesting main character in Zen who's goofy and has a lot of humor in how he does things, but at the end of the day is a very heroic character... And you have Mothra as not the traditional American monster like you were talking about. She has a lot of personality and she, at the end of the day, is pretty much the good guy, even though she's killed a lot of people at this point. Yeah. The fact that, you know, there's evil and good and good wins at the end of the day. The princess is saved. (laughs) (laughs) You know, all that, I think, is a good introduction to kaiju movies in that you're establishing sometimes the monster is the good guy and sometimes the true villain was capitalism all along. (laughs) (laughs) I would definitely agree. And also the fact that it's like half comedy. Yeah. I think that also makes it a good intro thing. It's a little over the top, a little hokey, but that's kind of what makes it fun. Yeah. I don't know if I would ever choose it as someone's first just because I think there are better options for that. (laughs) But I definitely do think it's a good good one for people who don't aren't in the in the thick of the genre but it's kind of right in the middle of it's not so hokey like godzilla versus megalon Mm -hmm. 
but it's not so serious and dour as Rodan or Godzilla. It kind of hits that middle spot where, you know, you just want to see the good guy win at the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. Shinichi Sekizawa's sweet spot. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So if anyone wants to get at us, if you want to tweet at us or email us, you can reach us at our email, kaijuislandpodcast at gmail.com. Please feel free to tell us who you think would play Mothra in our uh, Slice of Life show at Island Kaiju on Twitter. And we are always open to other opinions or corrections. Absolutely. Our intro and outro are Manga Maniac by Olive Music. And thank you for listening. Let's all fight bravely as a team. Punch, punch, punch.